Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, and I want to apologize for those of you who get my notes, because I had a senior moment last night. Um, A lot of stuff I send out, I get myself. In other words, my Sunday school lessons, when I send them out, they come to me as well. And uh, I was thinking these notes came to me as well. When I didn't get them, I thought, gee, I must have done something wrong. So I sent them again. I still didn't get them. I sent them again. I still didn't get them. Then Ninette said, you're not supposed to get them. And I thought, oh, she's right. You're not. (laughs) So I'm sorry for sending them to you three times. Um, But uh, you should have gotten them. You wouldn't have gotten them till later last night. So, right. Uh, but But if you have your notes from last week that'll cover a lot of this uh lesson because we're going to talk about uh, a lot of the stuff we talked about last week so uh anyway um i want to uh review our quotations from virgil this week and give us a few more and then give us a little exercise on these quotations because quotations are no good in themselves unless you can use them in certain situations. And so we're going to have a little bit of uh, work on that. And then also, um, uh, we're going to read our poem that we had last week that I gave you, our little two-line poem, the most passionate poem in any literature, and yet it's totally clean and totally appropriate. So, What uh, lesson lesson do I look at, Gary? uh, This is 30. Well, if you have 33, that's the one that... That's the one we're going to be doing, but if but 32 has kind of got a lot of the same stuff in it, too. So, okay. I didn't even know I was going to send any new notes out until yesterday, and then I decided, yeah, I got to. By the way, the next time you get notes, it'll have some books on it that you can get from Bard or from uh, Audible or somewhere like that about Rome, about the Romans. Uh, and some of them are fictitious books, and some of them are real. Greg was good enough to... Uh, give us some detective stories set in ancient Rome. And I've read a few of them and they're very good. So uh, I think you'll like them if you like that sort of thing. Anyway, let's talk about a quote that's not Virgil, but it's a quote that I told you a story about last week. And by the way, I'm sure Michael, I think Mike Moran's the one that puts these recordings up. So I have a feeling I haven't checked, but I bet you last week's lesson is up already. So uh, you can look on that. See, stolidi redent verba latina. Anyone remember what that means? Stolidi redent verba latina. Oh, stolidi redent verba latina. Anybody remember what the word stolidi means? We get an English word from that. We get. Mm-hmm. It means fool's laugh at the Latin language. Remember, we talked about that guy that said Latin was no good. And I said, well, fool's laugh at the Latin language. I told you that little story last week. Uh, we get the word stolid. If you call somebody stolid, you mean they're kind of stupid. Humorless. Uh, humorless, serious, real, not, not um, you know, not very interesting. They just sort of plot along, you might say. Gary, you have a base fan. Uh, Tori W. has. Thank you, Tori. Yes. 
Hi, sorry. Um, I'm new. Uh, this is my first class, and um, I saw on the email there was notes, but it only says like lesson two. It's not like no, no. If you want notes, uh, I gave up on that because I didn't. I should probably submit them to that again. If you would like notes, and I can send you a truckload of them, send uh, a note to, to community at acb dot. Is it org or com? Olg. The community at acb.org and tell Cindy that you want to be in contact with me and I will make sure you get all the notes. Thank you. And it's quite a bit. It's like, uh, well, we're on lesson 33 now, but a lot of it is review. We review each week. And if you come in new, that's fine. Have you ever had a foreign language before? Uh. I studied, uh, I took Spanish in high school, so. Okay, well, then you know something about foreign language, so. Yeah. Um, and we do a lot of things there. We do mythology, right? Today, we're going to be doing a lot of quotations. Um, so, do I just, like, write, because I can write, like, whatever is here and down, or do you do that already, like? In the notes, you will get all this stuff that I'm saying. You will have okay. all okay. for you. So, and if she sends me your information, I'll make sure you get all this stuff. Um, I'll send it to you in the email and then you can either, however you read emails. Some people use Braille displays. Some people just read them, listening to them, whatever's easiest for you, whatever's the easiest yeah. thing. For you. Okay. Thank you. All right. So yeah. Fools, fools laugh, laugh at, at the, the Latin, Latin language. I'm sorry. I was, I had my hand up. This is Carla. And I yeah. Go through, but fools laugh at the lang- the Latin language or Latin words as well. That's right. Say. And it's saying Cicero is trying to get people to take Latin seriously because in his day, people thought Latin was kind of a barbaric language, even though they spoke it, they thought it was second class to Greek. And he's trying to say, well, it is second class to Greek, but it's not really a barbaric language. And he developed it. He worked with it and developed it into be quite a good language, quite a, an expressive language, but it's a lot due to him. So anyway, then we talked about fiduciary last week. What does fiduciary mean? Trustee. Yes, good. And you weren't even here. Yes, it's it has to do with when you pass away, uh, who is going to take care of or administer your estate? And so it has to do with, with trustees, um, the relationship between the trustee and the beneficiary, especially. Uh, and it can mean a trustee. It comes from the Latin word to guard. And so whoever your trustee is, it's going to be doing your will, whether it's a bank, a lawyer, or a, an individual, um, they have to have fiduciary responsibilities. And that means fiducia means guard. And then we also talked about codicils. What's a codicil? Um, um, a little letter. Yep. That's actually what it is. A little letter, but it's a little note put on a wheel that you can write in your on your will and you put it with your will. And that that is what people will go by. So if you're supposed to leave all your things to your favorite nephew and he makes you mad. And then you write a little note and say, I change it, leave it all to my niece. Well, your favorite nephew's out of luck. They'll go to your niece. So, and it goes to Codicillus. Codicillus means a little book or a little note or a little tablet on which you would write a little short note. 
Uh, and the different states have different laws about codicil. So before you cut your nephew out and put your niece in, you better check your state, see what they say about that. That's funny. Okay. Well, you know, some people change change their will quite often. Kind of mm-hmm. use it as a, a you know a battering ram. You don't do what I want. I'll put you out and put Susie in. You know. So anyway. Uh, and then we talked about Virgil because we're talking about the Aeneid right now. We're talking about Aeneas's wanderings. And Virgil is one of the greatest Roman poets, and he wrote this poem called the Aeneid. And uh, and so I thought we would look at some famous quotations. I could have given you more, but I gave you the ones I thought are the most famous and the most interesting and that you might hear sometime in the future. And the first one was, Tantai molis erat Romanam condere gentem. Tantai molis erat Romanam, hello Chanel, condere gentem, which means it was such a great task to found the Roman nation, meaning that people will die, uh, hearts will be broken, uh, you know, a lot of things will go wrong, but as long as Rome is founded, it's worth it all. That's kind of the way they felt. It's tough, but that's the most important thing, uh, at least to the people that wrote this book. But if they say, you know, this is like the, what, the, oh, I don't know, 12th, 13th line of the poem. So they say the Aeneid begins with a sigh. Oh, it was so difficult to found the Roman nation, you know. So the poem kind of begins with a sigh, you might say. Hmm. Uh, Then there's a quote that I personally love because it reminds me of my life. And uh, Tom, you you might like this quote too because it might remind you part of of your life. For son at haiko limmim and nisei uabit, which means perhaps someday to remember these things, will be helpful. Meaning we think back all that stuff we went through at Maryland School for the Blind and we were homesick and all that. Sometimes thinking back on that, it seems like uh, it's kind of fun to think back on it now. Maybe, you know, maybe it was worth it all. Maybe not. Maybe it was. So I kind of yeah. like that quote. Um, Duke's fame and a fakti. Anyone remember yeah. that one? What's it mean? A woman is the leader of the deed. A woman the deed. is the leader of the deed. And what woman were they talking about? Helen of Troy? No, that's a good guess, though. Queen, <laughs> Queen, Queen Dido. Queen oh. Dido built Carthage almost single-handedly, and she brought her people out of Tyre and brought them to Carthage, and she was a great leader. And uh, so that quote is applied to her. And it was also applied to Victoria. I mean, to uh, not Victoria, Queen Elizabeth the sec- the first, Queen Elizabeth oh. I when the Spanish Armada was defeated. The English people were going around going, Duke's fame and a fakti, meaning she was the leader <laughs> of it. So, yeah. And then we have a very um, kind of a sad quote. Sunt lacrimae rerum et mentem mortalia tangunt, which means there are tears for misfortunes and mortal sorrows touch the human heart. Simply meaning that life can be sad and that when we look at life, Sometimes there are a lot of things that happen that, that make us sad, that we can think, that we can kind of sympathize with. And the Aeneid has a sadness in it. It's a lot of sad things that happen in the Aeneid. And so uh, that quote really kind of goes along with that. Then we have a nice quote. And, Moosey, I'm sorry you missed my little story last week. Mains conscia recti. 
Anyone remember what that means? A mind conscious of right. Yep. A mind conscious of right. And I told you a little story about the two shoe stores across from each other. One put the sign up, Mains Konski Erecti. He meant that he was a good man, you know, that he was an honest man. The guy across the street didn't know Latin, so he put men's and women's Konski Erecti. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, and then we have a good quote for a special ed teacher. I think really, I like this one. Non ignara mali miseri sucurre disco. Not being ignorant of evil, I have learned how to help the wretched. Uh, that's, by the way, if you look at that quote, you can tell something that you can't tell from the translation. You can tell that a woman said it because it says known ignara, I not being ignorant of evil. And Queen Dido said that. She basically said, I've been through a lot of trouble and therefore I know how to help people that, uh, that are in trouble. Uh, and that's what it means. But I like that quote. If I could have put a quote over my classroom door, it might've been that one. It might've been. It might've also been Nil Sine Magno Vita Labore Dedit Mortalibus from Horace, which means, the gods have given nothing to mortals without great labor to encourage my students to do their homework. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so one or the other of those. Now, we have some other quotes, and these are new, and these will not be in Lesson 32. These will be in Lesson 33 notes, and these are new, and uh, you've heard of some of these. This first one you've heard. Time odanaos et dona ferentis, meaning I fear the Greeks even when bearing gifts. Remember that quote? Remember who said that quote? You might remember who said that quote. I don't know if you will or not. When we talked about the uh, Trojan War, the beginning of the, the, the fall of Troy. Laocoon, remember Laocoon said, don't, I don't want you to take the horse in. I don't care what it's here for, whether it's here for a religious purpose or not. I don't trust the Greeks. I fear the Greeks, even when bearing gifts, even when they're sacrificing. And so that's kind of a famous one. And here's another one I really like. I don't know if you like this one or not. Una salus victis, nulam sperare salutem, which means the only safety for the conquered is to hope for no safety. In other words, if you're being conquered and being hard-pressed, what is there to hope for? Nothing. And you got a hand, you got a, uh, a toy has a hand raised. Yeah, Tori. Um, I was just going to, I was just going to ask, sorry to interrupt. Um, no, no. Isn't the Trojan, like, isn't the Trojan horse, that, that horse where they like hid in it and tried to like make it seem like it wasn't anything. And then they like came out and kind of ambushed them or something. You're exactly right. right. You're exactly right. And what happened was the Trojan horse was there in Troy, was there outside of Troy. And then some of the Trojans wanted to take it into the city, which they, which they did finally do. But one guy tried to convince them not to. And he said, you guys are crazy to want to take this thing in. That's when he said that famous quote, I fear the Greeks even when they're bearing gifts, I mean, even when they're bringing us this horse. And he threw a spear at the horse. And uh, when the spear hit the horse, it made a jingling sound because it, it jarred the guys inside. And some of the armor jingled a little bit. And they say, if the, if the gods had not been against it, the, uh, the Trojans would have realized that they shouldn't do it. 
and they would have taken the horse in, but gods didn't want, I mean, they wouldn't have taken the horse in. They would have realized something was wrong, but they, their minds were blinded and they went ahead and did it anyway. So yes, you're exactly correct. By the way, there is a virus on the computer called the Trojan horse. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it can get into your computer kind of secretly and ruin your computer. So I actually yeah. did know that there was one time where we had something like that. So, yeah, and it can it can do the same thing that the tro- and then modern day uses of this thing about the Trojan horse. Please, I don't want to get into politics too much, but some people say, uh, well, I guess you could say it with any a leader that you don't like. Some people say, why in the world did we elect this particular leader? Well, because people's minds were blinded; they weren't thinking. Clearly, they voted, and then this person got in, and it turned out to be not quite what they thought. And I've heard that said. I've heard that said of several different political leaders on both sides of the fence. So, uh, you you might see that used in comparison today too. Okay, I like that quote there. By the way, that quote there. uh, uh, There's one hope for the conquered to hope for no. There's one safety for the conquered to hope for no safety. Uh, that's an example of an oxymoron, by the way, kind of. Oxymorons, when you say opposites, you know, one safety, no safety. Uh, jumbo shrimp is another example of. <laughs> uh, so. All right. Here's another one that's real quick, real quick. Here's a, where Latin can say something in three words that English has to have more words to say. Dis aliter visum, which means. The gods decreed otherwise. What it really means in Latin is it seemed otherwise to the gods. And that's used when it's talking about Troy got destroyed. Good men died. Some really good men died. Men who were honest and religious, and yet they got killed. And Virgil is saying they seemed like they were really good men, but it seemed otherwise to the gods. In other words, the gods thought it was better that Troy fall, so it fell. And that's kind of a stoic way of looking at it, like, well, you know, and, and you could use that today whenever something goes really wrong and you don't know why, you know, and you don't agree with it, you can just say, seek uh, a de, um, dis aliter visum, and that's it. Okay, now we have a couple quotes about love. Last week we were talking about Dido and Aeneas being in love, and we talked about Aeneas decided he would get his ships ready and then figure out a way to tell Dido that Mercury had told him he had to leave. But before he could tell her, she figured it out. And the quote that goes along with that is, quis falere posidamantem, who can deceive a lover? Who can deceive someone loving, that is someone in love? Okay, and so, you know, if someone's in love, you're not going to fool them. Yeah, you're not going to, pull the wool over their eyes too long. They're going to figure it out. They're going to feel it somehow. All right, 11. Here's another quote about love. Improbe amor, quid non mortalia pectora cogis, which means wicked love. What do you not compel mortals to do? Or what do you not drive mortal hearts to do? That is, when someone's in love, they'll do anything to try to get that person to be back in love with them. They'll do anything. They'll do anything. And uh, Dido does that. She acts like kind of a fool. 
for a while to get Aeneas back, um, as I'll as we'll talk about later today. And then this last quote here. Oh, Gary, about, I had a question. That mm-hmm. pectora does that relate? You know, where the heart to the chest? Yes, pector your pectoral muscles pectora, or your chest muscles. Yeah, because I, yeah. I saw that and I thought of that. Yes, pectora is a neuter plural. The word for heart is is a pectus pectoris, meaning heart. Uh, it's one word for heart anyway. Core. There's another word for heart. Core. Core. It's, it's yes. crazy because I feel like I should understand some of these words. Like I feel like some of these words are very close to English. Like pectoris is like oh, like I, you know, pecs. Like I feel like I should yep, be understanding. Yep, yep. And you're going to find that more and more as you learn Latin. You're gonna you're gonna say I should have known that, or I feel like I knew that, or I th- that happens all the time as you learn Latin. You'll yeah, find, because, you know more Latin than you think you know. You really do. Yeah, because the like some of the words sound like they're very close to English words, and so it's like it's like on the cusp of like I don't know that, but I feel like I should understand mm-hmm. it. That's right. Yeah, that's kind of the way I feel when I hear Spanish because I because the Latin and Spanish are so close together. I feel like I should get it because of the Latin, and sometimes I sort of do. But uh, yeah, you're going to notice that. You're going to notice that as we go through this. The last quote is, uh, your girls are not going to like this quote, but I didn't say it, so don't blame me. Uh, uh, in fact, the guy that, uh, a guy that translated the Aeneid, Dryden, a guy named Dryden, said, if a god didn't say it, Virgil would never have dared to write this quote, and I would not have dared to translate it. Okay, and that is waria met mutabile semper femina, which means woman is ever a fickle and changeable thing. Woman is ever a fickle and changeable thing. Notice they call her a thing, meaning she really changes. Uh, And that's said by the god Mercury when he's warning Aeneas, get out of here. She's going to change her mind and and, uh, bring ships after you and so forth. Get out of here. And that's when he says that sentence. Wow, they were even against women in, in Roman times. <laughs> well, I think they 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 always felt that they were changeable and maybe a bit moody. I don't know. No, oh, actually, the Romans treated women. That's an interesting point that you brought up. The, the Romans actually treated women better than the Greeks did. The Greeks kind of, you know, made them stay in their own part of the house and wouldn't let them go out unless they went with their husbands. And Greek women really couldn't, didn't have much freedom. The Greeks said of a woman, the best woman is she who is least talked about among the men, whether for good or ill. The Romans didn't feel like that. They let their women go out. They let their women inherit property. Uh, they let their women divorce or, you know, I mean, they were much more like our women today are than Greek women were. Or Jewish yeah. women. Jewish women were kept pretty, uh, you know, pretty down also. In fact, if a Jewish guy wanted to divorce his wife, all he had to do was tap her on the head three times with his shoe, and she was divorced. So I guess every time a man took his shoes off, the woman thought, hmm, I wonder if this is it. Uh, anyway, but the Romans did treat women better than, than others. 
Okay, uh, two, three more quotes. And these, this, this next quote I really like. It's a good quote for anything, really. I gave this to one of my students who was, ended up being a Latin major in college. Uh, I gave this to her on a, on a scarf that I had my grandmother make. Uh, she embroidered this quote into the scarf. And it said, Tu nekede malis, which means do not yield to misfortunes, meaning keep going, keep on, don't give up, don't let, you know, misfortune keep you down. Um, in fact, the whole line goes, I, li- I like the whole line. It goes, tu nekede malis, said contra adentior it. Said contra al dentior ito quam tua te fortuna sinet, which means don't yield to evils, but go forward more boldly than your fortune permits. Meaning keep going and keep moving on and keep trying. I like that quote. I like that quote. I really do. Um, then we have one that's kind of uh, famous uh, because it's so true to life. Foculus discensus awareno, which means easy is the descent to Hades. Now, awareno, by the way, is Lake Avernus, which was an entrance to the underworld where the dead went. That's the word for Hades. But this means it's easy to get into trouble, but it's tough to get out. It's easy to get into a tough situation, but it's hard to get back out of it again. And so... The next time you hear someone getting in trouble, you can say, Foculus discensus awareno. Where's the verb? Uh, the verb is understood. Oh, okay. the, the verb est. The verb okay. est is understood. That happens a lot in like proverbial kind of expressions. They sometimes do leave the word est out. And one last one. Nunc animis opus. Now is there need for courage. Opus, opus est. Again, the verb has been left out. Opus est means there is need for. And now there is need for courage. This is right when Aeneas is getting ready to go down into the underworld. And uh, she's saying there is need for courage. Uh, But that's also a quote you can apply to a lot of situations. Now, I gave you a little exercise here, uh, which I'm going to do the first one for you. Uh, with you, but then the rest of them I'd like you to try to do. And what this basically is, it just says from quotes one to 15, select the one which would be appropriate to quote in each of the following situations and write the number of the quotation and then the letter. Uh, And so let's just try one. Uh, Tori, I just got your contact request so I can get these notes out to you today. Good. I just got your your request. Okay. Uh, let's just look at the first one, and we'll see see what we what we mean here. The first one is a quote: "Man proposes, fate disposes." Have you ever heard anyone say that? Man proposes, fate disposes. What quote? What which of these Virgil quotes do you think would be a good quote to quote in when someone says that? I've heard it a different way. How's that, Beth? Um, man, propo- like in Spanish, um, el, hombre po- propone, el hombre propone y Dios dispone, like man proposes and God disposes. Okay, yes, that's another way of putting it. That's Gary, way I would it. say it'd be number nine. 
You're right. Desolitaire wisdom. It seemed otherwise to the gods or the gods decreed otherwise. Yes. So that's what we want you to do for the rest of them is uh, simply pick the quote that you think says kind of the same thing or would be appropriate to that situation. Let's do one more, one more. And is always changing, or uh, Anne is always changing her mind. <laughs> That's an easy one. Number twelve. Y- yes, Wariumet mutabile semper femina. A woman is a, a fickle and changeable thing. Yes. So good. Okay. So you get the idea uh, of what we're doing. So you want to try to do those for next time, and we'll go over them. Some of them are a little hard. Um, uh, some of them I took from a book and some of them I did myself. So uh, anyway. Okay, I thought we'd look at this little two-line poem, those passionate poems, one of the most passionate poems in any literature, and yet it's totally clean, totally appropriate, and there's something missing from it that you would expect to find in a poem. Okay. And this is the poem, uh, and you've been reading basic sentences to help you read this poem, so it won't be too hard for you, but this poem says, Odi et amo, quare id faciam fortasse requiris, nescio, sed fieri sentio et excrucior. And that is, and by the way, this is by our friend Catullus. Remember, we talked about Catullus before. He was in love, really in love, and this woman didn't love him and really treated him pretty bad, ran out with other guys, um, uh, you know, shut him out of her house. Uh, then it got to where she was picking guys up on the street corners. And I mean, it really got, she got pretty wild. The, the more he loved her, the wilder she got. And finally, uh, their affair broke up. And we read the last poem. I read it to you, or I summarized it for you, the last poem that he wrote to her about. This is one of the last, uh, a little two-line poem. And what does it say? Odi et amo. What do those two words mean? Hate and love. I hate, I hate, and I love. Love, yes. Okay. I hate and I love. Mm -hmm. Now, the obvious question is what? Normally, hate and love are pretty opposites, right? Right. So the question is, quare id faciam fortasse requiris? You ask why I do this. You ask why I do this. Okay, and the answer is nescio. I don't know. I don't know. Said fieri sentio. But I feel it to be done. Yep, I feel it to be done. I feel it is so at excrucior. And I am literally, and I am crucified. Hmm. Meaning, and I am tortured. Okay. Now, this poem was written before anyone would have thought of Jesus being crucified. Jesus was crucified in what, 33, 30, uh, 33 AD. This poem was probably written before 54 BC. So uh, this poem was written way before Jesus, but the Romans did have crucifixion, which they used for slaves to punish slaves, a very awful punishment, painful punishment. And so when he says excrucior, I am 
tortured, crucified. That's where we get our word excruciating, by the way, excruciating pain. Yeah, that's where we get that. And so, um, oh, by the way, Tori, if you uh, look on the website, uh, I think in that uh, invitation to Lively Latin, they show you where the recordings are. I think all the lessons have been recorded. At least very many of them have. Uh, I think if you look for them, you probably can find all of them. There might be one. Okay. I think there's one we missed, but... Um, the, also, the, you were you were right. It was 33 AD. For the- yeah, okay. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, they think he was born in about 4... Uh, what, 4 BC? 4 AD? I can't remember now. Yeah. Jesus was about 33 when he was crucified so but the point is you know catullus had no idea anybody would would associate that with anyone he just but it but he uses it because it's such a painful punishment and so he says i hate and i love perhaps you ask why i do this i don't know but i feel it is done and i am crucified now so the point is, he's in love with her still, but he hates her uh, at the same time. And he has both emotions, and, he, and it's driving him crazy. And he doesn't know what to do with it. He can't get rid of either emotion. But let me ask you a question. Do you see anything missing from this poem that you would normally think you have to have in a poem? A rhyme. Well, that's true. It does not rhyme, but no, but but a lot of Latin poetry doesn't rhyme. But let me read this poem to you in Latin because it does have a meter. The meter is called the elegiac couplet. So the first line is pretty much a um, a dactylic hexameter. It goes long, short, short, long, short, short, long, 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 short, short, long, 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 short, short, long, long. So it goes. And by the way, when you have a word ending with a vowel and the next word begins with a vowel, you elide them together. So you say, O detamo quarid faciam fortas eriquiris. Okay, the second line is like clickety, clickety, clack, clickety, clickety, clack. So it goes, Nescio sed fieri sentiet excrucior. So I'm going to read it one more time. O detamo. Quarid faciam fortasse requiris, nescio sed fieri senti et excrugior. Okay, you'll notice the elisions, you'll notice that. Now, I have a question. Yes. So, um, in Latin, like, because um, I, I would assume people have, like, written it, um, are the, like, because um, I know the letters may not be the same, but are there, like, punctuation in latin as well okay or? the letters are the same as in english because they oh, use okay. the phoenician alphabet which is where we got our alphabet so yes the letters are the, same. the answer to your question is no uh, the, the romans did not use punctuation so there is no punctuation in real latin if you read this in real in the original manuscript there would be no punctuation except uh perhaps capital letters but no periods or question marks or colons or commas or anything like that, which is why in Latin, when you want to ask a question, you put the 
question word on the beginning of the first word of the sentence. You put a little word nay uh, because there were no question marks. Oh, okay. That makes oh, sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was like, because um, I don't know what punctuation was interrupted. So I'm sure it was before that. But I mean, like, if you were to write Latin now, like, would you, is like. You'd put it now. Yes. If I ask you to write a sentence in Latin, yes, you would put periods and question marks and commas. And the editors, for example, the guy that edited this book, this poem, he put uh, commas in and periods in and question marks in and so forth. Right. But would it be the same as like the English ones? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, okay. oh yeah. All the all the signs are the same. All the all the letters are the same. All the punctuation marks are the same. Yes. The only thing that Latin would have that English doesn't have and it doesn't have to be in the Latin is sometimes, especially when you're learning Latin, they put long marks in. But um, you don't even have to have to have them. And in college books, they often don't have. Them. So everything else is the same. But you still haven't told me, guys, what's missing from this poem. Other than a rhyme, which you're right, it doesn't rhyme. There's something else missing that you almost always have to have in a poem. I have no idea. And it's funny. I read and write a lot of poetry. I, I, I just. Well, I mean, I feel like I don't I don't ever write Latin. So I don't know if it'd be the same as like something you'd have to have in English. All right. You heard me. You heard me read this poem. I hate and I love you perhaps ask why I do this. I don't know, but I feel that it is done and I am crucified. All right. In English, if you heard that poem, what's missing that's normally in a poem other than rhyme? And then I tell you, you're going to hate yourselves. Give me one second. I'm trying to think about There is not one noun in that poem. Not one noun. How many poems can you write without a noun? Not many, right? You, you know, whose woods these are, there's a noun. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though, there are two nouns. Think of any poem. Oh, dear little bird, way out in the snow, I'll scatter some crumbs for you. That's a poem I learned when I was little. How do you like to go up in a swing? Up in the air so blue, that's got a noun in it, swing. Uh, oh, friendly cow, with all her might, I loved with all my heart. That's another poem I learned when I was a kid. It's a noun in there, cow. Jack and Jill went up the hill. That, there are two nouns in there. How many poems can you quote to me that have not one noun in it? There's not one noun in that poem. Why? Well, partly because what is he stressing? He's stressing emotions. He's stressing feelings, and that's verbs. Well, now, Gary, you've given me a challenge. I'm going to write a poem without a noun. Carla, I want to see you do that. <laughs> I do. I think that's a great thing. I couldn't, I don't know if I could do it, do it. Maybe I could, but uh, anyway, but there's not one noun in that poem. And yet it is a passionate poem. It is, uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys like this poem or not. It's not, I can't say it's my favorite poem, but it's, but it's a very passionate poem. Can you it, repeat the poem one more time in English? Sure. Before you do that, I must tell you that it is one past the hour. All right. Thank you, Tom. Mm -hmm. I hate and I love. Perhaps you ask why I do this. I don't know, but I feel that it is so, and I am crucified, or I am tortured, or I am tormented. 
I mean, if you want to go for the literal version of a noun, there are like three nouns in there because a noun could be a person, place, or thing, which means saying I can also technically be a noun because you are a person. Okay, I, I accept that. I will accept that. That's a pronoun, but it refers to a man. But even right. so, there is not a noun in there. There is a pronoun and a verb, but there's not a noun. And how many poems have you seen where there is not a noun? Most of the time, you have to mention a concrete object, like a noun, like you're usually writing about it. Now, now you could say, I suppose, he's writing about a girl. Well, he's really writing about his feelings about a girl. So there's a girl hovering back in the background somewhere. Right. And he is hovering in the background somewhere as the poet. So in a sense, yes, there is a noun in that poem, but there are no nouns expressed in that poem. And that is still a trick. And that is still an achievement. I don't, uh, and I don't know any other poems that he wrote like that. Most poems he wrote, I think, have nouns uh, in them. We're going to read one next week, but certainly has some nouns in it. Uh, anyway, there you go. There you are. Now, the next thing we want to look at briefly before we talk about the Aeneid is the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense is easy. You'll have no trouble with it at all. It's pretty easy in Spanish. It's pretty easy in French, and it's, it's pretty easy in Latin. In uh, Latin, it, it's a tense describing incompleted action in past time. Incompleted, uh, background, repeated, etc. And so, for example, um, it can be translated. Four, four, one second. Three, four, two, oh. Um, it can be translated. If I wrote uh, Amabam, that could be translated. I loved often. I used to love. I was loving. I would love. I continued to love. I used to love. All those things that one tense could mean. Um, now, this tense in Latin is easy. You take the present stem of the verb, which you get by dropping the RE from the infinitive, and you simply add ba. B-A, and plus the personal endings, which when you're doing past tense, instead of O, it's M. So it's M-S-T, M-U-S, T-I-S, and N-T. Remember we did that song? O is I. Remember that? Well, now we'd say M is I, S is you, T is he, T is she, T is it, Mus is we, Tis is you, N-T they, and we simply add that onto the end. And so it's a it's a very uh, funny looking tense in a way. It's bomb, boss, bot, bombus, bot, this bunt. But Beth and Carla can tell us that in Spanish, you have the same tense, which is a blaba, a blaba, a blaba, a blabamos, a blabais, a blaban, right? It'd be a blabamos, a blabais. A blabamos. Is that how you say it? A blabamos. I never could get those accents right. A blabais, a blaban. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, if I were going to translate, uh, conjugate the verb to, to love, I would say amabam, amabas, amabat. And I show this to you in the notes. Amabamus, amabatis, amabant. Okay. Wideo, second conjugation. Instead of A, it's an E. Wideobam, wideobas, wideobat, wideobamus, wideobatis, wideobant. By the way, it's interesting that in Latin, 
um, in Latin, the that ba 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 goes all the way through the imperfect tense, whereas in Spanish, when you get to the second and third conjugations, they do ia like they do at tenia, tenias, tenia, or you know, comia, comias, comia, or salia, salia, salia. I think I'm right on that anyway. So they don't do it the same way. They don't do that ba 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 like they did in the first conjugation, but in Latin it goes all the way through. Agebam, agebas, agebat, agebamos, agebates, agebant. I was doing, etc. I show you. Now, where it changes is in the third IO and fourth conjugation, the I comes in before the E. So you always say I E B A M, I E B A S. So copiebam, copiebas, copiebat, copiebamos, copiebates, copiebant. Same thing with enweneo to find, enweneebam, enweneebas, enweneebat, enweneebamos, enweneebates, enweneebant. Okay. Now we have two irregular verbs, and they're irregular in Spanish too. In Spanish, the verb ser in the imperfect is something like era, 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 right? Well, in Latin, it's eram, eras, erat, eramus, eratis, erant. It's irregular. And I give you the meanings to that in the notes. The verb posum, meaning to be able, is also irregular. It's poteram, poteras, poterat, poteramus, poteratis, poteram. And then... I give you an exercise to change some verbs from the present to the imperfect. And I show you the infinitives of these verbs uh, so that you can uh, uh, know what conjugation. Remember, let's, let's just review a minute. If a verb ends in A-R-E, it's what conjugation? It's the first conjugation. Yep, if it one. ends in long E-R-E. Yeah, I would say the first one. Second one. Second. If it's long, it's short E-R-E. The third. Third. Or third I-O. The third only way I you can yes. tell the two is if the first, I give you first person and I give you the infinitive. The first person ends in I-O, but the second form is short E-R-E, it's third. If it's I-O and I-R-E, it's fourth. Uh, we have to sing our verb song again. First conjugation has A-R-E. Second conjugation has long E-R-E. Third conjugation has E-R-E. Third I-O has E-R-E. And fourth conjugation has I-R-E. Remember that song? First mm -hmm. conjugation has A-R-E. Second conjugation has long E-R-E. Third conjugation has E-R-E. Third I-O has E-R-E. And fourth conjugation has I-R-E. And then we do more of the song, but doesn't apply here because we're going in perfect tense. So anyway, so you have a little exercise here. And then we have a Catullus poem. This might be the last Catullus poem we read in this class. We'll see. This one's called Miser Catulli, which means wretched Catullus. And I tell you, before trying to read this poem, look at your basic sentences, because some of the sentences are helpful in understanding this poem. For example, Miser Catulli desinas ineptire, which means wretched Catullus, stop playing the fool, stop being stupid. Whatever. That's what the first line means. I've translated the first line for you. By the way, the meter of this poem is funny. It's called the coliambic or the limping iambic. And it's called that because it's like, you know, Shakespeare writes that, 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 right? The, all his poems, a lot of his poems are in the iambic pentameter. 
da 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 Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Remember that poem? Okay, but this doesn't do that. This does that. But then it goes, the last line kind of goes backwards. And it gives it a limping quality. And it's used when they want to make fun of something, when and Catullus is kind of making fun of himself in this poem. And so it goes, and when they put that at the end, it just sounds sort of silly. It sort of sounds satirical. See how it does that? And it, it sounds kind of silly at the end. And so it's kind of a funny, you know, meter. And it's used because Catullus here is kind of making fun of himself for being such a dolt. And he's kind of giving himself a pep talk, telling him, get done with this. Stop being stupid. You know, get over this girl. Uh, and you'll see at the end whether he succeeds in talking himself out of this or not. Okay. Any questions on this much? Mm. Okay, so look that over for the next time. I want to talk about our friend Aeneas. He's in the middle of a love story here. You remember when we left Aeneas, he had landed in Carthage, and Venus had caused Dido to fall in love with him. Dido is a, a widow ruling Carthage. Aeneas is a widower, and you would think the two would be a perfect match. They have a lot in common. And you would think that this would be a match made in heaven. And certainly Dido is madly in love with this guy. But Mercury, but, but the fates say that Aeneas is destined to go to Italy and help found Rome and be the ancestor of the Romans. He can't be the ancestor of the Romans in Italy if he's there with Dido. And so Mercury, so Jupiter sends Mercury down and all of a sudden out of nowhere, Mercury appears in front of Aeneas and calls him henpecked and says, get out of here. Go set sail. You don't belong here. And this scares Aeneas to death. And so he decides I better obey what the gods say. And so he, he tells his men, he doesn't quite know how to tell Dido because she thinks they're married. He didn't say they were, but he didn't say they weren't. And they've been <laughs> living together and uh, they've been, you know, acting as if they were married. And, um, so he doesn't quite know what to do. How do you walk up to her and say, oh, dear, by the way, I'm leaving tomorrow? You know, you didn't know that, did you? But I am. Anyway, so he tells his men, get, start getting ready, and I'll think of something. And so they start getting ready, but Dido finds out and comes to him and basically says, are you running away from me? And she gives him this real sad talk like, you're not running away from me, are you? And she, she ends her talk by a really sad thing. She says, if only I had had a child by you before you left, at least I wouldn't feel so deserted, so, so totally alone. Her speech would move a stone. I mean, it would. In answer to it, Aeneas basically very coldly says to her, first of all, I never said we were married. Second of all, if I could go wherever I wanted, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in Troy. I would never have left Troy. And thirdly, 
a God appeared to me and told me to go. And so stop inflaming us both with your complaints. I go to Italy because I must. Is basically what it says. And so, you know, a lot of people think Aeneas in this part of the Aeneid is hateful, is odious, is really awful because Dido gives him a, an appeal that would move a stone and it doesn't move him. But if he's going to be the kind of character that he is, that is true to his mission, then it can't. And so it says he feels great love in his heart, but he obeys the gods and goes on to a ship. Uh, Dido gets very angry here and distraught and, and basically says, reminds him of all the things she did for him. She took him in when he was shipwrecked on the shore. She divided her kingdom with him. She, you know, was her, was his lover. She was good to him. And this is what he did. And so she gets very upset. She ends up fainting and going off the scene. Aeneas goes on to a ship and they, they start getting ready to go. And night comes, Aeneas is asleep and Mercury appears to him and says, buddy, you better get out of here. You better get out of here because if you're still here by morning, the sea is going to be alive with ships and Dido is going to send her men after you and your ships just might burn. And so you better get out of here for a woman is a fickle and changing thing. That's where he says that quote. And so without a further word, Aeneas wakes up, wakes up his men. They lift anchor. They set sail. And when Dido gets up the next morning and looks out, they're gone. And so she gets very upset and she decides that she will commit suicide. And so she kind of tricks her sister who has been helping her into building this pyre, telling her that she's going to use this pyre that she's building to burn things on to get rid of the memory of Aeneas. You know, in other words, she's going to, like you would burn it if someone gave you, if your lover gave you certain things, you might burn them or throw them out to get rid of his memory. Uh, well, so she tricks her sister into helping her build this pyre with the idea that she's going to burn stuff on it. Instead, she jumps on it and stabs herself with a, with a sword that she had given to Aeneas that he left there. And so when her, it's kind of scary the way it happens because suddenly her maids look around and she's bleeding. She's got blood all over the place. She stabbed herself in an artery and she's just bleeding and she dies and her wound make a, makes a gurgling sound in her chest, they say. And she dies and everyone is sorry. And, and it is a waste because she has been a great leader and yet she let this love thing get the best of her. So it's a real dramatic story. Aeneas, by the way, meanwhile, was out at sea and he sees this, the gleam of her funeral pyre from his ship. And he thinks something must have really gone wrong back there in Carthage, but he doesn't know what it is. And he's kind of sheepish. He doesn't quite know what to do. We're probably about out of time, I imagine. And uh, but that that part of the Aeneid is the masterpiece. It's it's Virgil's masterpiece, because when most Romans read this part of the Aeneid, they would have thought of Cleopatra. Cleopatra was a wicked queen who lured Mark Antony to change sides instead of siding with with Augustus to side with her. 
And most Romans would not be sympathetic to Dido because she would remind them of Cleopatra. But when they read the book, they would be sympathetic with her. Virgil did the impossible. He took an unsympathetic character and would have made the Romans sympathize with her. Most people reading that would have sympathized with Dido. They would not sympathize with the hero of the poem. So he really accomplished quite a feat here. Uh, Two minutes to the top of the hour. Okay, guys. So you have your homework. You're gonna, next week, you're going to read Miser Catale. You're going to change your verbs to the imperfect, and you're going to do your quotations. And we'll come back next week with that and God knows what else. Uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I haven't decided yet. Uh, uh, and uh, Tori, I will, uh, I'll get this material out to you. I might send it in several emails because it's a lot of stuff. So uh, and it'll be in a it'll be in attachments. So uh, and look, you can look for the recordings. Um, they're probably on on the website still. I think if you don't find them, let me know because I still have some of them. Uh, I I probably have all of them. Did you follow this all right today? Yeah, it was okay. fine. Good. All right, guys. See you all next week. Thank you, Tom.